This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Valencien. Ah, art school. Since art schools are now typically incorporated into universities, it is no longer the norm for them to have mottos imprinted on the crests or logos. If one were to devise a headline for today's art school, the choice between you two can be an artist and abandon all hope you who enter here would be quite tough. Despite significant changes in mainstream art education in recent decades, many Anglophone art schools have not abandoned the principal tools of the masterclass or the crypt that stem from some stubborn 18th century inventions. Considering these histories can shed light on the role of the art school in the 21st century. A philosopher of the art school, by Michael Newell, does just that. The book draws on first-hand accounts of art school teaching and is deeply informed by disciplines ranging from art history and art theory to the philosophy of art, education and creativity. Michael Newell is a programme leader in art and philosophy at the University of Kent and I'm very happy that he joins me now. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much, Pierre. Michael, I went to art school, so I'm afraid I have some questions. But before we get into those, I'd like to ask you a little bit about your experience, how Mm. it is that you came to write a book about the art school, how you came to write a book about the philosophy of the art school. What was your intellectual and research trajectory? How did you get here? Yeah, so I wouldn't have written this book unless I'd been to to art school myself. And uh, now I I write about art and write philosophy, philosophy of art, philosophy of perception, among other things, some art history. But I started off wanting to be an artist. um, And when I came out of school, so like a lot of people feel that way, of course, um, I signed up for art school. And I had particular perceptions of what it would be like. Uh, I thought that I would be learning certain skills. Uh, I'd be learning how to draw and Mm -hmm. how to paint, how to produce kind of lifelike images, all those those kinds of things because, you know, I guess I'd seen films and movies about (laughs) about artists and I'd been to art galleries. I guess this was at a time, the early 90s, where Actually, contemporary art didn't have quite the profile it does now in terms of museums and the media. And so, you know, I thought it was going to be portraits and landscapes and so on. Mm. When I got to art school, it was really, I guess, a surprise and a shock to me, like I think it probably was to, you know, (laughs) most people who turned up to art school then. Um, and I spent a lot of time kind of uh, waiting around for the proper art school to begin. Um, and <laughs> uh, we got various different sorts of things. We learned little tiny bits of technique in the first year, but not enough to actually really master any skills, uh, not enough to produce anything, you know, that could hang in a museum. Um, 
And we learnt uh, things like colour theory, which involved colouring in little squares, like little abstract paintings and colour circles and things. Uh, actually, I actually managed to, to fail that. I produced a terrible colour circle. It was an embarrassment. Um, and, I hope that, that um, exists in an archive somewhere. We can, we can include this maybe that would as be, a that link would, in the show notes. That, that would be <laughs> lovely. Yeah, to, to, to revisit. <laughs> Of course, we studied what I thought would be, we studied art theory, which is not art history at all. We didn't mm. get to learn about um, art from, you know, the Renaissance or whatever through to the 19th century and modernism. Rather, it was this other stuff, art theory, which was a whole range of stuff which involved um, aspects of different kinds of disciplines drawn in and applied to contemporary visual culture and the visual arts, uh, critical theory, psychoanalysis, general postmodernism, all kinds of things. Are we, are we allowed to know which article that was? I ask not, yeah, not because yeah. I want you to incriminate yourself, but I am at some point going to have to declare my various allegiances and experiences. Yeah, it might be I'm interesting curious. to compare some of our experiences and some of the timeframes in which we, we got to observe these things. Yeah, I'm curious to, to hear about your experiences too. So I went to a, a school of art in um, where I grew up in Adelaide in South Australia, mm -hmm. where I am now in fact. It's an institution called the, the South Australian School of Arts and um, it's over 150 years old. Uh, it's older than many well-known even famous British art schools. But a really crucial thing that I've, I've, I've got to stress is that probably anyone who's been to an art school in Britain or America uh, or Australasia, some other places too, they're very similar. The experiences yeah. are very similar. Um, and there are kind of cultural reasons for that um, because certainly in Australia, the staff as well as the curriculum for many years came from these other places. They come from, you know, the cultural centres, uh, mm. Britain predominantly in the case of Australia. Well, I think this issue of repetition and this kind of copycat nature of art school curricula and teaching methods is going to be quite interesting. But before we get back to that, I want to ask you maybe for a very simple definition of what it is that we are looking to teach um, at the risk of asking a very banal question, what is the contemporary art of the contemporary art school? No, it's, it's a really important question. It's, it's key to being taught. The contemporary art school, as you say, it teaches contemporary art, and that's the kind of art uh, which you see in, for instance, contemporary art museums, uh, which developed, you know, it has its own kind of history, which got going from the 1960s onward. That's uh, the kind of work which exemplifies the languages and concerns of contemporary art. And of course, they've grown and shifted since that time. One crucial feature uh, is that contemporary art can look like anything. It can be made from any sort of medium. It could be film or video. It might be painting, it might even be realistic painting uh, or drawing. Um, but it might be performance or or some kind of assemblage of found objects or something else. There are simply no limits on what it can be. So it's very open in terms of its forms and techniques and materials are uh, as open as anything can be. In terms of its 
its content, there's a similar openness. Uh, it can really be about uh, any kind of theme or topic that's of interest mm. to arts and to uh, an arts community and and, and to artists. You're kind of setting yourself for quite a specific task here. I don't, I don't mm. quite know where we can go from here because the central mm. question of your book is, can art be taught? And we've just said that art can be anything. Yeah. But then the challenge is mm. how the everything and anything can be taught. I wonder before we get into this, I could ask you to, to join me in a little wordplay if you have a copy of your book. If you return to page three, I wonder if we could together read out a few answers okay. to the very, very same question, um, which was posed by the artist John Reardon as mm -hmm. he was interviewing a number of artists. John mm. Reardon's book is, uh, he has this fantastic book of interviews and it's an, it's an amazing resource, which I, I highly recommend. I found it very useful. Useful, it is also quite funny. So I'll ask the question, can art be taught? Yeah, Phila Tabalo, she says, no, you cannot, but you can provide an endless process of inquiry and debate and discussion around it. Graham Crowley responds, I'm going to get straight to it and ask what you mean by art. This is a, a really direct one. Van Allen Green says, sure you can. You're teaching people how to think. Right. Another slightly longer involved answer. Can I teach art? Generally, I would say no, I can't teach art. I can only teach students to make their own work. I can't teach art because the definition of art is so wide and complex. I don't know how many artists there are in the world. Perhaps 20 million? So we have 20 million definitions of art. That's a slightly obfuscating, I'd say, not particularly useful answer from Martin Hornet. Let's end with Christoph Schlesinghoff. Nine, nine. I have no idea how it works. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's a really charming one. Yeah. It is a charming so, one. And uh, there would have been an amusing, amazing one if you've decided it was worth, <laughs> worth going with yeah. because it would have saved you the effort of writing yes. the book, I guess. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing from the fact that I hold another 200 mm. pages of the book in my hand is that you disagreed. How is it that we can answer this question? And how can we, how can we think about teaching art and what it means? Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that I take from those quotes um, and a lot, a lot of other things too is there's no clear intuition about how to answer that question, at least in simple terms, whether it can be taught. And so part of the book, um, a large part of the book, the core of it is trying to pick, pick away the issues involved. And uh, I see that there are immediately two issues that can be picked apart here, and they help explain why people who really know their stuff can give such very different answers and in such an authoritative mood. And I think, you know, largely they're, if you put them all in a room, I don't think they'd find a lot to disagree on, um, really. <laughs> Part of the issue is that they're you know, they understand the question in different ways. So I think that's part of its, its complexity. I'll say there are, there are two broad issues. One is a question about what teaching actually involves. Mm -hmm. um, and one is a question about what art actually involves. Um, so if you understand teaching in a certain way, if you understand teaching as just a transferring of knowledge from teacher to student, then uh, it's going to be hard to see um, how that's going to be something that will turn something in, turn someone into an artist. If you understand teaching in another way, 
uh, you can open up that possibility more easily, I think. So if you understand teaching um, on, a, on constructivist principles, you then understand it as teaching students to the skills, if you like, um, and attitudes they need to construct knowledge themselves to go go out there, learn things mm. themselves. That's a particular way of thinking. You know, those those two approaches to education, they're really kind of caricatures. No educational philosopher will say it's just this way or it's it, it's just that way, although perhaps some have in the past. One of those, the second one, if you like, where you're learning, developing aptitudes to construct knowledge yourself, that's obviously going to be uh, more useful in contemporary art. But there's also mm. an understanding of art, uh, what it is to be an artist that's important. And I think at the core of understanding of, of what it is to be an artist is a term that is, it's one that's come in and out of fashion. Um, but the one core of being an artist is coming up with new things, new, valuable, original things. Um, and that's creativity. You know, it's, uh, as I say, it's not always a fashionable term, but it's hard to come up with another a word for it. It's the, the word that's used in educational mm. theory and philosophy. Uh, the thing about creativity is that's what is really, if you analyse what it is that you need to be an artist that's perhaps the only thing you can't really convey as knowledge. Everything else is about learning, say, the skills to manipulate a medium in a certain way, to understand theory in a certain way, facts about art history. Almost everything, if you like, aside from this core kernel of creativity, can be conveyed as knowledge. It's the creativity, the yeah. capacity to actually generate new, interesting instances of art that haven't been seen before that are going to... This is the yeah. super interesting thread that runs through the book. Mm. You convincingly answer your, your first question of can art be taught by proposing that the way one would go about this is to propose some kind of a concept of mm. art being developed and instilled with the artist, and then one would follow on with developing skills and tools for exploring mm. and expanding on that concept. And that's kind of all, all well and good. I can imagine how that could be framed in just about any educational style really possible. But there was a number of reasons by which we, we're not really in such an arbitrary territory as it, as it comes to art. And mm. I think that's where your research, your writing becomes particularly valuable because the art school has undergone on one side absolutely zero development for 200 years, but also one revolution after another. Nonetheless, the central question remain exactly the same. So I'd like to ask you to maybe highlight some of the things that we might observe in the art school as they differ from, from other educational experiences. Yeah, some striking features uh, of the art school I fasten on to help motivate my account and that, you know, seem kind of mysterious just on their own. So one is what's uh, sometimes called de-skilling, and I use, use that term, coined by uh, the Australian, I think, conceptual artist Ian Byrne. And I use it in this sense, I guess, slightly different from his. Um, 
is that in art school, one learns all kinds of skills, little bits and pieces, but uh, you don't necessarily learn anything in particular. There aren't any fundamentals or essentials that mm. you, you need to learn. Um, and in some cases, certainly in some historical instances that I looked at in the 1960s, where there's this huge revolution, one of many in art school teaching, when it happens, there are art schools. I'm thinking of Leeds College of Art in particular, which was a really crucial example. There was almost nothing on the curriculum at all. So where in previous years there would have been all many sequences of uh, different things you had to, to learn around different media and different techniques and, and skills to be able to, to, you know, I don't know, sculpt like Henry Moore uh, who worked there at one point or draw and paint like a 19th century painter, all that stuff was completely removed. So there was nothing in particular you had to do apart from maybe a, a first introductory kind of exercise, a sort of a, a welcoming exercise more than learning any skills. You just made the work that you were interested in. I mean, that almost sounds like the, the final work as well. It's the same assignment yeah. at every level, presumably. So this is, this is something that has, has changed because, you know, can you imagine what the sort of curriculum documents that you have to produce yeah. now would have looked like in, you know, uh, under such circumstances. And I think it's changed with good reason too, because uh, you need a kind of a, a scaffolding before you're given complete, complete freedom. There was also a historical aspect to this. This happened in to lesser degrees at many art schools and um, a whole generation of artists went without learning these mm. traditional skills. And it meant by the time that I went to to art school in the 90s, the people I was taught by who went to art school in the 60s or 70s, roughly speaking, on the whole, roughly speaking, they hadn't got the kind of training that, yeah. that I was expecting. They weren't able to teach me this. It wasn't as if they weren't withholding it. But something, of course, replaces this lost material. That de-skilling is one thing. Uh, another thing is the introduction of, of art theory. People are sometimes astonished by the way, you know, if you don't know art schools and the art world, they can be astonished by the way that artists are not so much talk usually, but write about their work. Uh, mm. It seems to be a kind of a language in its own right. That's something that has an interesting history to it. And that language has a kind of function, a really important function as well in framing artists' concerns first for themselves, second for, you know, the immediate communities they're part of. And third, actually, you know, it starts to to feed into the way that contemporary art museums um, communicate to uh, you know the broader uh, culture. So um, it's sometimes it's strange, sort of awkward language because it's this combination of all kinds of things, as I said, critical theory, psychoanalysis, art history. Um, so to a specialist in any of these areas, it will seem strange and disjointed. That's something that has grown up by a kind of process. So what happened in the 19th 50s, uh, when art school training was somewhat different. Um, it was in many progressive uh, schools. It was dominated by modernism. So think uh, especially abstract painting. Their art history in Britain, which is very influential, the, the first model that developed uh, for teaching 
if you like, art theory. It wasn't really art theory at all. It was art history. There was a very simple mm. approach. Uh, in your first year at art school, you would learn um, the first centuries of art history from, let's say, you know, the, the, the Stone Age with scare quotes um, <laughs> through to, let's say, the, the Renaissance. In the second year, you might learn the 19th century. Uh, and in your final year, you'd get to learn modern art. And that would kind of be it. This is something I don't mention in the book. But the art historian, uh, great feminist art historian, Griselda Pollock, I asked her about her experiences teaching and um, little known fact, because she knows a lot about art schools and art school training. Um, but she started off teaching theory in art schools. I met her where I was teaching at the time in Canterbury at the University of Kent. Um, and it turned out that she had taught in, in Kent at an institution that's changed its name. It's now part of the University of the Creative Arts. She said that the students, after a while of these classes, getting the complete history of art in slow motion over three years. Uh, the students bowed her up. So this would have been into the 1960s, I suppose, um, perhaps the early 70s. And uh, she said the students bowed her up and said, this is just completely irrelevant to us. We, we, we hate it. Yeah. Uh, stop it. You know, we want to know about what's going on now and contemporary art and uh, the issues around contemporary culture uh, and all these things, which, of course, she, she completely knew about. And she said, you know, she listened to them and uh, she just uh, pivoted on the spot and gave them these things that they wanted and, and which they needed. Um, and that's something that, in different forms, many many teachers obviously not as mm. not as accommodating as Griselda Pollock, um, but sooner or later, uh, that art history gave way to the art theory as um, people in art schools know yeah. it, and you know some, sometimes love it. Yeah, we we're getting a bit controversial here already, but I mean, what you but mentioned perhaps, now yeah. the, the idea the idea of students making demands on the teachers is. Something that comes up throughout the book and through the history of the art school, and I think that's something that happens quite a lot earlier than we might mm. might imagine. It's not just mm. just the idea of the 1960s in which various types of social revolutions pile up onto each other. And one of the things I want us to get to later on in the conversation is how we can imagine, how we can conceive the students' desires as they keep on changing. Mm -hmm. and the demands of the university, which is now the natural home, or rather the de facto home for, for the art school. But maybe I could ask you to persevere with a kind of historical overview. You essentially start us off in the 18th, 19th century, a little bit in France, a little bit in Germany, with different aims. And I think if we could have a whirlwind tour through, through the mm -hmm. histories and the features of, of these developments, I think it might, might help us untangle yeah. where we are today. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So I start off, um, as you say, in uh, around the, the 18th century, which is a kind of a, a high watermark um, for academy teaching, that's the 17th, 18th century. That's the kind of traditional art school training that um, many people imagine. Students would, they, they would learn how to, first, in fact, they would learn how to do something which I think most most students would really be horrified now how to how to copy you would copy uh 
drawings, prints, and sculptures, uh, and you'd spend an enormously long time doing that. Um, and once you're able to draw well, uh, you'd get to you you'd get to paint, which might take you know might take quite some time. Um, and uh, it'd only be it might only be a few years in that you'd get to do the most exciting thing. Uh, for artists at the time, many artists at the time, which is work from uh, the life model, uh, the nude model, which mm. is a kind of basic building block for what back then was the most ambitious form of painting, history paintings, you know, with, you know, look like a, a Poussin or a Raphael or a Michelangelo, this sort of thing. And that's a kind of training that actually in, in many places uh, continued up until even the 1950s, relatively unchanged in many places. Um, and you can still see if you go into uh, the old art schools uh, in Europe uh, and other places too now. Um, so the Royal Academy in London is a great example. They've still got all their plaster casts up. So they're plaster wow. casts of famous sculptures. Obviously, the students don't use these things um, at, at all. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Well, they, they have become tourist attractions now after the Royal Academy has been remodeled. Yeah, and they are actually fabulous things. And they still have the, uh, the life drawing room, which is purpose-built, which is a wonderful thing. You know, I say these things and most many Art schools will say, no, no, we still do, we still do that. But of course, you know, it'll just be a few little introductory things. We will have to figure out a way of, of interrogating the connections. Tracy Emin, our Royal Academician, one of the generation of young British artists who came to prominence in the, the 90s and the early 2000s, mm. she quite, quite famously says um, that she would really recommend students, um, aspiring artists, to go and spend some time doing life drawing. She propagates, she, mm. she really promotes the idea of connecting the eye and the hand, you know, the pencil still being tall. And it's very, very bizarre to hear that kind of endorsement of life drawing as a skill yeah. development, as, as, a, as, a, as a toolkit. You know, Emin is uh, really interesting um, you know, she is, she is someone who is very open about the positive influence that, that art school had for her. And you can see that mm. in, in her work. And she's known as, you know, this exemplar of a transgressive artist. That all came out um, of an art school background. And she's someone who's really open about that. And that's actually a really unusual thing. I think that speaks mm. to her uh, confidence. Um, most uh, artists, like all of us, they, they draw from their context, things they've learned. Yeah. But most artists tend to kind of diminish that. They don't talk about the, the schools and the, the people who are really influential on them. Mm. And you mentioned a useful word, which is, which is the artist as an exemplar. The artist as exemplar is a phrase that appears in the book. And I wonder whether we could, we could use this to go back to the historical view and yeah. And talk about maybe the role of the master class and how it how it develops historically. Yeah. So what happens 
uh, in the 18th century, which is really an important development for, for contemporary art, um, is that there was this revolt against the academy, against academic mm. models of, and you you can think of it in particular as uh, the sequential learning of skills um, yeah. and uh, dutiful obedience to a master and really crucial thing, copying. In the 18th century, and it's something that continues to develop in the 19th, um, there was this then somewhat new new notion of the artist as as a genius, the romantic genius. Mm-hmm. This quickly, you know, as soon as it developed, it also became a kind of cliche, which people were aware of. Um, but it's something that's utterly changed uh, the, the culture for ambitious artists. Instead yeah. of wanting to get your head down and perform well in the academy, you're instead supposed to do what it is that a genius does. And a genius is somebody who is, you know, to use the modern term, they're creative, let's say, radically, hugely creative. (laughs) Uh, They're someone who comes up with new inventions, new ideas, uh, original things no one's ever seen before in the world. And that's what uh, a great artist is now supposed to Mm. do. And if you think about it that way, if you think about the achievements of a really significant artist that way, the only way they're going to do that uh, is to reject uh, imitation um, of yeah. other forms. That is to say, to reject the models of the, the academy. Partly tied up with that, there's a development of what in a way is a new way of teaching, but it's also a very old way of teaching. Um, and in, um, I call it the masterclass, which is, mm. uh, if you like, the German term. Uh, it's also known as atelier teaching. So the French, the French term, French, the, the artist studio. And the idea is that instead of going to copying these great classical models, you would go to an artist who is a great genius and will be a model in some sense for your own genius, mm-hmm. who is an exemplary, exemplary figure. There's a little puzzle about how this is going to work here, um, because if the student of this great uh, artist who's a genius is going to uh, make original work. They can't simply copy their master's work, can they? Uh, Because that won't be original. Also, artists at the time had to sort of think about how this would work. And, you know, there are different ways of putting it. But, you know, one sort of romantic idea, uh, this is the way that Edward Young, who's a a really important poet, really important theorist uh, for early romanticism, um, puts it, uh, is that the young artists will kind of spark off the fire mm. of this uh, their master, the genius. Another way, which you know we might put it now, is that they use the uh, they use their master as as a model, and they don't copy the works of the master. Though of course they might, and critics <laughs> might say, well, you know, you're not original; you're just copying the yeah. works of someone who is original. Um, but you know, one idea, a positive slant to put on it is that you can learn how to be an artist perhaps uh, what the techniques of originality are then you can apply those techniques yourself and develop your own original approach whatever way you see it though there was this uh, huge desire among ambitious young artists to go and train with uh, with the leading artists of their age and so uh, those artists, people like uh, David, um, who hated the academy for his own reasons. Mm. So this is uh, 18th cent- end of the 18th century in France. 
opened up his studio and essentially, because he was such an important, influential, famous artist, uh, you know, his, his studio essentially became another kind of a academy. <laughs> and this happened with other artists uh, in, on the continent in particular. Yeah. Um, and it's something that from the early 19th century was uh, accommodated or um, in a German model, it was integrated into academic teaching. So uh, what would happen is you'd have the ordinary academic curriculum and then in your final years, you'd uh, get to choose an artist to work with, which would yeah. and be it, part of As the you know, the system prevails in, in, in Germany in particular and Quite bizarrely, in my in my experience, um, German art school seems to be completely filled with either British or American artists or in overseas artists yeah. living in Berlin and commuting. So it's kind of strange to see how often the, the kind of masterclass idea that the art school's yeah. trade-off has become interna internationalized. I'm, I laughed a little bit earlier when you, when you first mentioned the idea of the artistic genius. Listeners who, who've heard me mm talking about these ideas before we'll know that I believe that the, the artistic genius is about the worst thing that's happened in art history. And I don't think we have expanded it really? from, our, yeah. from our practices. Yeah. But that's a very long conversation. And I want to yeah. come back to this in particular because one of the things that you do at various points of the book, which really strikes into the central question of what role originality and creativity, how these two are linked, how these things are performed or performable within the various types of art teaching. And when you come to genius in a masterclass, it's the first time you invoke Kantian ideas of originality. Mm. So I guess this is as good a moment as any for you to disagree with Immanuel Kant. Yeah. And, okay. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, no biggie. Yeah, no, there's um, obviously there's, uh, there's, there's, there's scope for that. You know, he's someone who wrote about genius and took the idea, took the idea seriously. But Kantians, I mean, there is a co cottage industry of uh, Kantian philosophers, <laughs> um, and um, they will have their. Well, own, the Kantian industrial complex, Michael. Nice, nice, nicely put. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Kant. He was thinking about this stuff um, at the end of the 18th century, and he drew on prevailing ideas that were out there, mm. this relatively new conception of the romantic genius. I mean, one really crucial thing, I really agree that genius is something that is, it's overrated in a word. Perhaps it's even, it's even an imaginary thing. Um, mm. It depends how you put it and how you describe it. Something that has been, in a way, it overlaps with creativity. In another way, it's opposed to creativity. For Kant, genius involves the, the generation of uh, original ideas. That's the way he puts it, ideas uh, mm. that, are, that are new to the world. Um, and you can understand creativity, at least a strong form of creativity, in the same way. Um, and so there's an, there's an overlap. It's a straightforward overlap, talking about the same thing. Um, but in a, another sense, they're really not talking about the same thing because for one reason, uh, not the only reason for Kant, uh, genius is a rare, uh, elite, special thing. And uh, it's something which only a handful of people, uh, a handful of people are going to have. And there are lots of other people who 
say this. There are uh, Young says this, something that, that Ruskin goes on about um, later in the 19th century. Um, it's, a, it's a really select group and uh, most people are going to fall far short. Those yeah. who fall far short, they're doomed to just imitate the genius. It's something that has much older roots, but in the mid-20th century, and there have been reactions against this too, as you'd expect, an idea, a much more democratic idea of creativity developed and became really powerful, especially in, in education. And that system, creativity is not elitist, but democratic, that we all have yeah. uh, really, in an important sense, a capacity for creativity. You could immediately say, well, sure, every, every, everyone is creative, every child is creative, and so on. We all have that capacity. And to, the other crucial thing here is that to fully realise yourself as a human being, you should in some way, not necessarily through art, fulfil that capacity for creativity. Otherwise, you haven't truly, you know, lived your life, mm. if you like, lived your best life. I, I think there is also, you know, there is something to that idea. I mean, that idea, that very democratic notion of creativity, it's a bit different from what you might think we're talking about, is, let's say, call it Kantian genius. That kind of creativity that we all have, you might say, well, it's not not everyone necessarily is going to come up, have the capacity to come up with new things that no one's ever thought of before. So perhaps there's a higher bar you want to set. But I think the bar for that is a lot lower than Kant actually sets it. I think that most of us, if we really work at a particular discipline and you know have a, a love for it, passion for it, and are given the opportunity to develop our own ideas, there often is a, a scope to develop new approaches, um, to develop new insights, to perhaps deepen our knowledge or understanding from a certain perspective. Um, and that's especially the case when we all have different perspectives and come from different contexts. And I also think it's not impossibly hard to realise uh, as Kant thought as well. Something to be added here. Every art student, you know, every ambitious art student in the 19th century and late 18th century in Europe, they all thought they were geniuses, everyone, every one of them. <laughs> they thought they were, you know, the, the, the chosen one. And that's really clear too. That's why they were going off to learn in masterclass or classes or ateliers. Uh, so in a sense, you know, in a sense, maybe not that much has changed. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I am much more in favour to give it a, you know, to give it a slogan, uh, I see creativity as a much more democratic, accessible, uh, potentially accessible quality attribute. Well, I guess that's just as well. Otherwise, we would risk going back to the very beginning of the book and asking the fundamental question of whether art can be taught yet again and possibly answering in the negative. But I want us to skip now as fast as we can to the 20th century and talk about the development of the crit, which is Yet another kind of strange invention as it goes in the canon of higher education. The, the crit is a really distinctive feature of uh, the contemporary art school. It's something which is very different from most other forms of teaching. What happens usually is a student will bring in something they've been working on. It could be anything. It might be a painting or a sculpture or an assemblage or a video work. They might produced, give a, a, a performance, uh, a reading, but usually it'll be an object. And the object sits there in the centre of the room and a group 
of students and will sit around the subject and they will look at it. Usually, not always, um, the student will say, be asked to say a, say something to introduce it, to explain uh, how they came to make this. And then the group will talk. There'll be a conversation um, with the students uh, among the group members. And that's often very, if you like, level. In some schools, especially in, in Britain, there'll be the students will often talk among themselves as much mm. or more than the teachers will about their own responses. And in other places, um, perhaps more often in America, um, you'll have a number of staff members and they'll much more take the lead. Yeah. Um, but whatever happens, it's entirely free in uh, the kind of discussion that might occur. Anything might happen. You know, you're, you're allowed to, certainly since the, the 1960s, once been allowed, or, or 70s, when these approaches developed, once been allowed to say simply anything. So one thing that's really striking about this is that it can be, certainly it has in the past. I mean, I think it's changed under certain pressures uh, recently, but it could be an extremely hostile environment. Almost mm. everyone that I talked to spoke about how tears could flow um, in, in a crit. Um, so students would be regularly be reduced to tears. Um, and I think it has to be said that, that in most of the descriptions I've seen, those students are, are women. That's mm. not to say that men don't get it just as often, get it just as hard as well. I think the answer that most teachers would give now is that crits may have had those failings in the past, partly because of their structure, partly because of attitudes of the staff, but that new models have addressed those issues. And I think that's, you know, that's a really interesting thing as well that people people just haven't looked at. So the crit being probably the one identifiable common element across pretty mm. much every single UK art school, whatever it is they're trying to do. It's no surprise that we will see this students educating each other kind of model favoured by the art school. But what I'm interested in, having observed art schools as an occasional visiting lecturer, I'm seeing actually a very different set of attitudes. So while I completely agree that sexism, mm. racism, and pretty much every other form of discrimination might have been the default mode of, of interaction in, in the 1970s, 80s, or even 90s, mm. actually I see quite a lot of interest in trigger warning conversation, like safe spaces. Maybe I'm a little bit old and I find mm. this a little bit funny to a certain extent. But that completely aside, I do wonder what that possibly means in terms of what the crit can do as an educational device, what that means in terms of the independence of thought that the crit can produce. Mm. And I think in your terms, that's something I know you have been thinking about since you wrote the book. It's the idea of consensus. The account I give, you know, looking at, the experiences of people I knew, uh, what I'd read about crits, what I found out about the, the history of crits, uh, which is, is really limited. Someone should, should write a history of the, this form of education. The remarkable thing is it's just not clear what they're supposed to do and what can be done in this remarkably free environment where apparently anything goes. You know, you could, the student presents anything um, and people uh, respond in any way that they like, you know, what can possibly 
be gained, learned in <laughs> such such an environment? So that's to put the question in the strongest way possible. You know, you might say, well, maybe it's not much, you know. So what the the problem with that is, well, this is, as the point Elkins has made, this is how art is taught, that this is the interaction yeah. between students and staff. So if the teacher is going to happen anywhere, it's got to happen here. It's pretty much the only place. Sure, there's, there's theory, but that's, you know, that's a kind of a side dish to the practical art education. So I thought, well, if crit works well, what is it doing? And this is the account that I came up with. And I have to say, you know, often crits don't work well. And I spend a lot of time looking at that and look at interesting examples, interesting, horrifying examples where people are really um, suffer, you know, from horrible abuse at the hands of uh, staff. And perhaps it also needs to be said, it's clear that art schools, they do teach things to many students. They clearly value the experience very highly. And if you do want to be a successful artist, you have to, you pretty much have to go to art school. You need to go to an art school to learn how to be an artist. And if you look at the art, the CVs of successful artists, and this is the case going back, probably roughly speaking, a good 50 years, there are exceptions, absolutely there are exceptions. But pretty much everyone has gone to to art school. And if they haven't gone to art school, they've gone to, they've usually studied a, a cognate discipline. That's all to say, you know, crits, they seem to me to need attention. They seem to me to need a positive account of what is drawn from them. And I thought this was best understood in terms of consensus, which I have to say, it's a, it's a Kantian term. It's a really problematic term, <laughs> which I've become more and more doubtful about. And I'll say something about that too. But the idea was that uh, if you're going to derive anything of value from a crit, one has to, as a student going into it, uh, you have to draw something from the response of uh, your audience. And my thinking was that once you've tried your ideas as a student out on the audience, the audience tries each other's ideas out on them and you as well, that there's going to be some area of consensus. So idiosyncratic outlying ideas can be dismissed, put aside, but more often than not, there's going to be some kind of general overlap in the value that people can find in a work or the feelings people have about it or the sort of suggestions they might have for further directions one might explore. I felt that I found a lot of evidence that suggested that um, when people spent time with crits and when they worked well, when they focused on them and they were run in a good way, this is something that would occur. And the idea was that the consensus would be a kind of democratic thing. It could come, mm. it would have to come more from the students, certainly in a British context, than the staff, because there are more students there, you know, who are responding. And there's also an implication there that, that staff shouldn't surreptitiously lead students in a particular way, which absolutely happens. It happens a lot. That's something which I'm, I've become more doubtful about since writing the book. Uh, I mean, the things that have made me doubtful First, Me Too, and second, Black Lives Matter, and all mm -hmm. uh, the changing focus around art and culture that's come out of that. Those things make me uh, less, if you like, less of a believer in consensus. I think if you have a relatively homogenous group, 
consensus is quite easy. If you have diversity, uh, the more diversity you have, the harder that kind of consensus is going to get. And I think that's something which, both in practice and in theory, can only make crits a, a tougher kind of thing. You know, what what is at risk of happening, what you know could very easily happen. And I think what happened in, in the past is, is students talked about their own experiences and brought symbols of their own experience into their work. Um, and these were uh, dismissed by, if you like, uh, yeah. the consensus of the dominant culture. I think there's still scope to explore the possibility for shared responses, and that's really important. But I think there's less scope than perhaps what I suggest in the book. And I think there's mm. a real risk of manufacturing consensus, uh, if you like, and that, that that's a really... That's a really dangerous thing. But I also think that the people who've been teaching crits, um, you know, the pandemic has really changed crits. It would have been an astonishingly astonishing thing to anyone two years ago. They've been conducted online now. Um, yeah. And at many places, you know, you can't be hostile over Zoom or people will just, people will just <laughs> turn off. And so I think the crits has, it's going through changes. It's a relatively young form. It started off, so far as I can figure out, in Britain in the 1960s yeah. under the name group criticism established in art schools properly in a widespread way, certainly in Britain and Australia in the 1970s. So it's a relatively new form of teaching. Well, a couple of things come to mind as you're talking about the problems of the critters. One is the lack of any precision in the curriculum, the course handbook. Mm. And, and we wouldn't be surprised that even as diverse as art schools are, and just, just as a couple of names out of the hat, I can't think of two places more radically different in what kind of artist and for what reason they produce than, say, Goldsmiths in London and the Royal College of Art also in London. They have mm. very different ideas of what art is, but my guess, looking at the curriculum and at the course handbook, they're probably very, very thin. They, they tell you what mm. you'll be able to do, what aspirations you might be able to pursue at the end of your degree, but they won't necessarily tell you what you'll learn. And the second mm. thing that comes at the end of that is that students universally find the idea of assessment utterly, utterly confusing. They don't know what's being said to them by who. I mean, this is particularly prevalent at undergraduate level for obvious reasons. That's actually a really fundamental confusion in what the art school tries to do. Mm. And yet, as we have observed time and time again, it exists, it propagates. Yeah. So how how yeah. do you account for these, these features? Yeah, I think these are really interesting issues and there are lots of issues tied up with them. And, you know, one issue is that... Um, the, the romantic ethos, the, the romant, artist as romantic oh, the genius. romantic it, genius comes back yeah, again, I told it, you. It really does, yeah. Um, it maintains a certain life here because students, um, you know, it's something which they, they absorb before they come to art school from mm. the, the broader culture. Um, and there's a sense that, you know, many of them feel understandably on that basis that there should not be some kind of rule uh, applied to them, there shouldn't be criteria that they're satisfying in a way that, you know, obviously if they were doing, I don't know, maths or accounting or the sciences or whatever. Yeah. And the issue is if you, you come with that kind of thought, the question is, well, why are you at art school? You know, there's a sense that whatever they should do should be 
it ought to be kind of congratulated. And that's something, you know, I should say I'm really positive about students and very much on their side. And uh, I take their side against that of academics and teachers uh, again and again throughout the book. But this is something which, um, you know, it's a trace of an older culture, this idea of the the romantic genius. And um, it's something that in outsides, you know, in in schools, uh, you know, in many art classes, people will, you know, certain teachers, they'll they're raised also influenced by this tradition. They'll, you'll, you'll be praised for what you do. You turn up at art school and, you know, you're no longer praised for anything you do and it's really <laughs> confusing. Um, and you think, well, you know, it's come out of, of, of me. It must have some value. That question of explaining what it is, what the point of art school is, it, one, one way to say, well, what do ex- what you expect to get out of art school? aside from a studio space. And there has to be some kind of answer to that question because clearly some students, they'll stick to those that approach throughout and ignore their, ignore their teachers and they've been shaped, those attitudes have been shaped by these older mm. 19, 19th century attitudes. I really wanted to have an answer to, you know, an answer that teachers could give, that I could give to people who said, well, what should I be, you know, what are the criteria? For assessment here and I think you know one way of saying it if one does think about consensus and I think as I say you have to think about that in a provisional way is that consensus arises out of a community the art school is a, a community if you like of, of makers and I really want mm. to think of the students as much even more than the staff and so it's it's that community that needs to provide a standard of judgment because that's what one really needs some kind of standard of judgment to say you know you should you should stop doing all this romantic stuff and you should uh think about where it's come from and all these things it's that's got to come from the community if you like uh and it would do well it'd be in some cases be a better thing if that message could be made clearer but it's also these issues interact with other things so Art school teachers are sort of just assumed that it, it would all, you know, that the smart kids work these things out um, mm. and they read all these social cues well. And that's one thing that you need to uh, often to, to be successful at, at art school to pick these things up. I, I think, you know, some of that could be made clearer. You say that uh, quite rightly that if you look at um, what all these schools say they're teaching goldsmiths or the royal royal academy i should say i haven't looked at those explicitly um but they're just the same everywhere um uh they're often kind of you know all these the documents that are produced now they they're they're they're, they're very similar that hasn't come organically out of art schools that's come from universities someone said we need criteria for assessments what are they and then the teachers go we have to come up with something (laughs) <laughs> and they do, and then they, you know, copy it, and at every college and university across across Britain, and spreads, develops, and so on. So there's there's this culture of, if you like, documents that is not not entirely related to what goes on uh, in practice. Michael, I have I have one more question, which maybe will involve a bit more speculation. And let's assume that we have finished humming 
along to um, common people by pulp for this part of the conversation. You know, the the sculpture at St. Martin's College and the romantic genius is gone. So one of the things that I see that you had been trying to do in the book is to look at ways of rehabilitating some of the historical developments that have been so particularly useful to the success of certain types of art schools. But I'd like us to take a second to, at the end, situate some of your proposals, which are to do with the masterclass and the crypt, the role of theory, your proposals for placing technical type of instructions in a particular sequence. I want us to consider this a little bit in light of the fact that art education has, over the last 10 years, become about as diverse as the range of instrumental aims of institutionally and commercially supported art practices has been. But there's also a preponderance of courses that are trying to produce artistic training or produce artists purely for their transferable skills. There's so many art schools around the world, around the UK alone, that produce artists who will never be artists. Therefore, we are kind of banking that they will have skills they can take elsewhere. There's a range of really specialized courses like art for social change, art for therapy. And some of these have very clear curricula where you would understand what the extensions are. But in my look at particularly art and social practice, art and politics courses, they're about as vague with the curricula as mainstream art schools. They just tell that, you know, they have fine art written above the door. Long question, big problem. How do we how do we deal with this? Yeah, you could say, well, what are what are art schools? What are art schools for? The obvious answer, you know, is is training artists. But there aren't like a lot of job openings for artists any anywhere in the world. Yeah, Martin Holland claimed we had twenty million artists in the world. I mean he he is wrong, but not that wrong. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, there are anxieties people have about what are we training all these people for. You know, it's absolutely true that art schools on the whole, certainly for the last 50-odd years, it's it's where artists, professional artists have come from. Mm. The more I thought about creativity and looked into it, wrote about it, thought about what happens in art schools, um, and the more that I talked with people who have come out of art schools about their experiences, the more I felt that it was something that was valuable in itself, number one. And number two has substantial transferable value, not always the transferable value that people want or expect, you know, economically. But I've already touched on the idea that living a creative life is part of uh, what we need to do to fulfil ourselves. Say you're someone who goes to art school and then does not become an artist, immediately drops it. Um, you've, spent, uh, you've spent three years of your life, maybe more, exploring, realising your creativity, realising yourself as a creative individual. Uh, I think that's, that's got value in itself. Uh, I think it really needs to be connected with life more broadly. I can see uh, on my video your, your brows moving, micro-expressions <laughs> of concern and doubt. Uh, so let me follow that up by saying, you know, I've also seen people who come out of art school, that experience of art school, they've swept away by it. And um, a few years later, 
they feel quite lost. They don't know what they're meant to do. They need to find something else to do. Um, and I also see, and this is, you know, something that can be slightly painful thing. Sometimes people who do devote their lives to art, the economic situation, it can be really difficult for them. It would have been, would have been much easier if they'd done accounting, something like that. But I also see a lot of people, and you know, I'm one of them who. I'm not an artist, um, but I've gone on to putting aside this particular work on art schools, which is just one part of what I what I do. You know, I've gone on to to teach teach in cognate disciplines, write different kinds of writing, and be involved with art and visual culture in different ways. But there are, you know, there's real complexity there because if you look at the history in the, the 1960s when this kind of art school training began. Um, you know, it was a tiny percentage of people in Britain, in Australia too, who went on to higher education, went to do these new kinds of fine art program. Mm. And that's something that's really changed and grown. And it's produced a lot more of, you know, a lot more fine arts graduates. And that's made these problems of these challenges tougher. And it's also made the question of what the curriculum of the art school should be should be like tougher as well perhaps more interesting i'm optimistic about it that's that's what i would want my my final word to be <laughs> on that i really think Oops. there's it's a valuable thing to do to go to art school and and i think there's a lot of good that comes at a, the level of you know the individual and the community from it not just in an artistic culture but in the, the culture generally well, hooray to that, Michael. I mean, I have to clarify that even though I have been complaining about the article and my critical questions, I am still happy that I did go <laughs> go to one myself. So thank you so much, Michael, for your for your research and for the conversation and for for your optimism. Well, thank you, Pierre. It's been a real pleasure. A Philosophy of the Art School by Michael Newell is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre Delancey and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.